Thank you, Mark and Aaron. It's a great passage. If you are following along in your Bibles, it's always good to keep your finger there. We'll make uh, reference to that. Uh, As we've been saying for a few weeks now, we have uh, some hard copy Bibles available uh, on the ushers' tables. Uh, Encourage you to to use them. Um, You know, I don't know how far I should go with this. (laughs) But here's the thing. We've got these wonderful devices called smartphones. We probably all have them up, and we could like all hold them up and turn them up, and it'll look like a concert or something. But... um, they're distracting, right? You've got notifications turned on, and so you're reading the, reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, oh, a text from my friend. And then you're drawn to doing that, right? Who's, who hasn't had that experience? And there is something that, that, that even people who study this say there's something about reading a hard copy book, and in particular a Bible that helps you follow. I tend to have a bit of a uh, sort of, I don't want to say photographic memory, because that would be stretching it, but I... I if I use the same Bible all the time, I don't necessarily memorize verses sometimes, but I know exactly what column, what page, and where, they, where I can find them easily because it's the same thing all the time. And so there's real benefit, is what we're trying to say, to having a hard copy. And so if you do not even have a hard copy uh, in your home or in your life, we have some available at the back and uh, on those ushers' tables. So help yourself, and you can take one home if you, if you need one. But I was recently asked a, new, a couple of times at least about what translation we use. Um, and my answer to that is, well, it just depends. Sometimes it depends on who's speaking. Um, uh, you know, kind of a go-to for all of us in the translation of those hard copy Bibles is the New International Version. It's just kind of sort of almost like the gold standard um, in terms of readability, in terms of, uh, of its um, uh, translation. Um, Pastor Adam likes to use the English Standard Version. I sometimes drift towards the, the, the Christian Standard Bible, which is uh, the CSB, which is what was read this morning. And sometimes it just depends on if, if, if it's a passage that's narrative that needs a little bit more um, description or words. And so then a translation maybe like the New Living Translation works really well. And so we don't have like this is the the translation that we use at TCC. We use a variety of them because we think they can all be good and benefit. And you're going to see, even in my message today, I I sort of deliberately went to various translations to help you see sometimes the differences in in translation. Um, But that's what we're dealing with. So for the past month, we have been talking about guarding your heart. Guarding your heart. This is the series we're in. And uh, if you're following along in the daily Bible reading plan uh, put together by uh, Robert Murray McShane this last Thursday, you would have read Proverbs chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 23, there's this word, verse, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And, you know, when I read that, I'm just like, you know, this could be our theme verse for this series. You see, we we tend to think of the heart as the seat of emotions. So everything that we feel, right, it's like, I love you with all my heart. But when the Bible talks about heart, the heart is the seat of really the whole person. It's probably closer to what we mean by mind. So when we talk about guarding your heart, it means more than you know, be careful what you love. It means something like, be careful what you treasure. 
Be careful what you set your affections and your thoughts on. And why do we need to be careful? Because as this proverb puts it, the heart is the wellspring of life. It's the wellspring of life. It, it, it directs and affects your life. What we set our minds and emotions on determines ultimately what we do and where we go. You see, it's, it's in the heart that these vices that we've been talking about for the past three weeks, it's in the heart that they corrupt and pollute. And Jesus says, and in the context of evil, he says in Matthew 12, verse 34, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of what? The heart. Okay? So there's the sense that we really need to pay attention. That's why we need to guard our hearts above all else, because it's the wellspring of life. And so what does it mean to guard our hearts? It means that we watch what we watch. We watch what we read. We, we watch what we think about. We pay attention to these things. We don't just kind of aimlessly drift along. And when we do that, it should cause us really to examine ourselves, right? That's why the psalmist says, search my heart, O God, right? Created me a clean heart. Like there's always this reference to, to, to the, the kind of our whole being. And so when we examine ourselves and we see things that are out of alignment with the way that God would have us live, we need to confess that, repent of it, turn away from it, and, uh, and continue to, to walk then in, in the victory that he gives us. And so we're at the midpoint of this series, Guarding Your Heart. We've covered so far gluttony, anger, and greed. Hasn't that been fun? Huh? You know? Been so enjoyable, I know. Ugh. And we still have envy, lust, and pride. Yikes. And so today everybody's thinking, great, we can take it easy because we're talking about sloth. Right? But here's the thing. I think you're going to be surprised and I hope even challenged, maybe even a little bit convicted as I have been this week. See, I have the worst job in a sense is I have to deal with this every single day. You come this morning for an hour and you deal with it, and then you can choose what you may do with it. But it's a tough thing. And, and I tell you, there were times this week where it was like, I don't know if I even want to say this because it's just so convicting and, and revealing of my own life as we unpack this vice of sloth. You see, you think of that word, we don't even use it that often probably, and so it's likely misunderstood. We probably have images of, you know, the couch potato uh, come to mind, or maybe those strange, relatively cute mammals that hang upside down in the treetops. But how in the world is sloth even considered one of the seven deadly sins? Has anyone ever died of taking too many naps? Would anyone even consider sloth a serious sin, yet alone a deadly one? I like how Rebecca DeYoung asks in this book that we've been referencing many times, and I know some of you have purchased it. It's a fascinating uh, book. It's super in-depth, and it's overwhelming at times to read it and say, okay, so how do I now digest some of this and process this and put it together? But she says this about this. She goes, does laziness really rank with sins like envy and lust in its evil and destructive power? Since when was sitting on the couch watching reruns of The Office and munching on a bag of chips a moral and spiritual failure of the first order? <laughs> Since when? Some of you are like, oh yeah, that, that kind of... I, I know who you are. You like The Office. Maybe 
You've read about the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. And so you're familiar with that concept. Maybe when you think of sloth, you immediately think of physical laziness. And since you're busy and hardworking, there's no way that your heart has an issue with sloth. But what if I told you that laziness isn't really sloth, it's more likely a symptom of sloth, and that even people who can never rest might have a heart that's infected with this vice. You see, what makes sloth so insidious is that it is actually difficult to define, and its presence in our hearts often goes undetected until it's too late. So very simply this morning, what is sloth? Why is it so dangerous? And lastly, what can we do about it? So what is sloth? A common definition of sloth is reluctance to work or make effort, okay? And symptoms then include things like laziness, idleness, sluggishness, apathy, lethargy, you know, words that we would never want to use to describe ourselves, right? I mean, can you imagine doing a character reference for a new, a new hire, and you call the guy and say, can you tell me a little bit about her? Can you tell me a little bit about him? And they say, well, you know, um, they're, they're, they're actually kind of lazy and um, a little sluggish, a little lethargic at times, tend to be somewhat apathetic, but uh, other than that, they're great. The Latin word for sloth is acedia, from which we actually get our, our word apathy from, and it literally then just means a lack of care a lack of care, or without care. It implies, as one writer puts it, an aimless indifference to one's responsibilities to God and to man. An aimless indifference to one's responsibilities. Probably the the best description of sloth that I read is from Dorothy Sayers in her book, The Other Six Deadly Sins. She writes this, It is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. the attitude of whatever. Your teens come home and you talk to them, whatever. It just drives you nuts, right? Because it's just saying, well, I don't care. I'm indifferent. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect me. And it just demonstrates kind of this lack of care. So let's consider the passage that was read for us and uh, I'm not going to go totally in depth on this, but just pull out a few things as it relates to this issue of sloth so that we can better understand sloth. And this passage that was read, it uses a literary device known as an inclusio, uh, which is when a word or a phrase bookends the beginning and end of a passage, which is ultimately intended to help the readers then focus on the main point. It basically makes this sandwich, these two bookends. So in verse 11 of chapter 5, we read this. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. And so there's that concept again. You're just too lazy to understand. What does that mean? Other translations, like the ESV, says you've become dull of hearing. Uh, NIV says you no longer try, like there's just no effort that's put in. 
the New English translation says sluggish. That's the word it uses. And oft, many other translations use that as well. And so that's on one end. And then on the other end, the other bookend is then the last two verses, 11, 12, where we read, Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. Why is that important? So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. So right there, there's significant clues about what... um, uh, sloth actually is. And the way you combat, combat it is to demonstrate diligence, to have this assurance, to, to, to inherit the promise through faith and perseverance. So think of those key words, words like diligence and perseverance, and you start to see kind of the opposite of what sloth actually is. And so this verse there where it's translated, this is again, I said the the Christian Standard Bible, where it won't become lazy. The King James Version uses the word slothful, so maybe it's it's a little older English word. And then the English Standard Version uses sluggish. And so you start to see how these these words kind of interchange a little bit and help us understand what uh, the writer is getting at. And the key word here in this passage is lazy, right? But it could be translated, as I said, sluggish or slothful. And the emphasis in chapter 5 and verse 11 is that the readers who are receiving this letter had become lazy in hearing. They had become sluggish in listening, and as a result, they actually failed to hear the true gospel message. Peter T. O'Brien, in his commentary on the letter to the Hebrews, says this, their difficulty, there being those who are receiving this word, is not simply mental laziness, but spiritual resistance. They are now unwilling to work out the deeper implications of the Gospels in their, in their lives. That is a great quote. You just kind of bear it like even two words. Spiritual resistance. I'm resistant to the work of the Spirit in my life. And I'm unwilling to work out. To work out. Make an effort to the deeper implications of the Gospel in their lives. And that phrase, I think, spiritual resistance, starts to really capture the essence of sloth. Rebecca DeYoung, again, calls sloth this, resistance to the demands of love. Resistance to the demands of love. John Owen, an English Puritan minister in the 17th century, in his classic work called Overcoming Sin and Temptation, unpacks four features of spiritual sloth in this passage from Hebrews. And then Brian Hedges in his book, Hit List, paraphrases these. And now think about this. I'm still trying to help define what is sloth. And so I'm going to give you four more kind of definitions to help us uh, get a little deeper and, and maybe a little bit more uncomfortable. The first is carelessness. Carelessness. This is what Owen calls uh, inadvertency. Essentially, it means negligence. It's that trait of forgetting or ignoring your responsibilities. Uh, one of the sluggard passages in Proverbs illustrates this. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. And there uh, Solomon writes, I went by the field of a slacker. Okay, so there's another word for sluggard or another, you know, another way of looking at this. And we know what a slacker is. I went by the field of a slacker. And by the vineyard of one lacking sense. 
Thistles had come up everywhere, weeds covered the ground, and the stone wall was ruined. I saw and took it to heart. I looked and received instructions. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber and your need like a bandit. The lesson there is simply that neglect, because of laziness and sloth, leads to poverty. And this neglect and carelessness, ultimately in our spiritual life, also has dreadful consequences. Now, another feature of sloth is simply this, an unwillingness to act. So we have carelessness and an unwillingness to act. Other words known as what? Procrastination. Or what Owen described sloth's, quote, unwillingness to be stirred up unto its duty. An unwillingness to be stirred up onto its duty. Again, back to Proverbs 20, verse 4. The slacker does not plow during planting season. At harvest time, he looks, and there is nothing. Who would do that? Well, the slacker or the sluggard. Doesn't do the work in the springtime, but expects there to be a harvest in the fall. And from a spiritual perspective, there's just, again, no response to the Word or the Spirit. We know what we should and what we need to do. We just simply choose not to. We're unwilling to act. That, my friends, is a sign of sloth. Or as James puts it in chapter 4, verse 17, anyone who knows the good he ought to do but doesn't do it, sins. Right? As opposed to the other seven, six of the other, six of the other seven deadly sins, those are more sins of commission. They're things that we do, or attitudes and actions that we have. Sloth really is more a sin of omission. It's something that we then don't do. So there's carelessness. There's an unwillingness to act. Thirdly, a half-hearted effort. A half-hearted effort. Because if we do act, it's then with a half-hearted effort. To quote Owen again, we give, quote, weak and ineffectual attempts to recover itself onto its duty. Weak and ineffectual attempts. And Owen compares this to the sluggard in Proverbs 26, verse 14. A door turns on its hinges and a slacker on his bed, right? So there is, again, that image of just, um, yeah, just being lazy, staying in bed all day. And he says this, in the turning of a door upon its hinges, there is some motion but no progress. There where he was one day, there he is the next. Yea, where, there where he was one year, he is the next. In other words, there's movement, but there's no progress. You see, a spiritual life can be like that too. We can get have lots of motion, lots of activity, but ultimately still not see any transformation. And that becomes the real impact of sloth. And the last one is discouragement in the face of difficulty. Discouragement in the face of difficulty. Because, as Owen says, every difficulty deters him from duty. So sloth is easily discouraged. This is when excuses keep us from our responsibility, right? We know what we want to do, but we come up, or what we should do, but we come up uh, and just say, you know, it's hard. I don't know if I want to do that. And so we, we, we resist doing it. 
And sometimes we come up with excuses and sometimes even imaginary uh, dangers become excuses. Like the Proverb twenty two thirteen says this, the slacker says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the public square, right? <laughs> so why even get up off the couch? I don't want to go out there. I might die. It's much safer here. So that's what sloth is. I hope that you start to, your mind's churning a little bit and say, okay, I think I I get it. But let's talk about why sloth is dangerous. You see, as I run through some of these features of sloth, I get really uncomfortable. I see myself far more than I would like to think or admit. The danger, of course, is that sloth has a significant impact on our relationship with God, first and foremost, but it also impacts our relationship with others. And, and, and here's a couple of things. reason sloth is dangerous is because we then fail to grow. We're kind of stunted in our growth. And back to Hebrews 5 again, the writer uses two illustrations to describe those who, as we've heard, were too lazy to understand. And he says, first of all, that they should be teachers themselves, and yet they still need someone to teach them the basics. So this is now verse 12 in chapter 5. Although by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principle of God's revelation again. And why is that? Because they have been careless or they've been negligent or they have not been intentional about their relationship with God. The second illustration then is, instead of being like adults eating solid food, They are adults needing to be bottle-fed. So this is now um, the last few verses of of chapter 5. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. And so what is the writer getting at? Essentially this, because of sloth, these readers had failed to grow. There was an immaturity that they could have grown out of if only they had paid more attention to God's Word. And that's why the writer goes on in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave that elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Okay? We can't just stay where we started. God is doing a work in us. And we need to continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. As we walk with Jesus, as we share Jesus, we go on to maturity. And so one of the dangers of sloth, because we're not intentional, we don't make the effort, we fail to grow. Another one is we're tempted to quit. This is a significant temptation of sloth. Hebrews chapter 6 now, verses 4 through 8, is kind of the meat of this sandwich. We have these two bookends where the writer talks about being lazy and slow to understand. And then, excuse me, he gets to the main point. Let me read it for you again, verses 4 and following. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain and often falls on it, and that 
that produces vegetation and useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. So it's a difficult passage and is often misunderstood. I'm not going to get into the various interpretations of it, but let me just say this. I think we need to view this passage as a warning to believers about what would happen if sloth were allowed to run its course. This passage itself is, is, is somewhat hypothetical in nature, and it shows us what would happen if a true Christian could ever fall away from Christ. See, I believe that, that we are eternally, when we have a true conversion experience, there's nothing that can change that. We are eternally secure. We are saved. Because that is what I believe the Bible teaches about that. And the truth is, is that no matter how we might struggle in our journey, however we might misstep and get out of alignment with God's will in some way, God never gives up on us. Right? He just never throws in the towel. He's never one who just says, you know what, uh, man, this is too much work. This guy is such a character. He's impossible to change. He's stubborn, belligerent. I want nothing to do with him. No, God never, ever thinks like that. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 makes this clear. Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Other translations, it will be faithful to complete it. Okay? What God has started in our lives, he will continue to work out. That's part of his amazing grace in our life. That's part of his persevering grace in our lives. It it keeps us in his grace. But just because that's true, it doesn't negate the warning. It's like a little bit of a, a, a dashboard light that comes on and says, no, like, pay attention to this in your lives. It's not gonna happen, but you're missing out. You're missing out on this full and abundant life that God has for you because you're not hearing the gospel. You're not listening to it. I know I need to land this plane soon, so let me just summarize it this way. Remember when I was defining what sloth was earlier, I used Rebecca DeYoung's definition, resistance to the demands of love. Okay? So what do we know about God? We know that God loves us, and we know that God wants to have a relationship with us. But what we do or don't do in response to his love has a direct impact on whether or not we are transformed by that relationship. See, that's ultimately why sloth is so dangerous. Because if we're too lazy to make every effort, as the Bible says repeatedly, to make every effort to grow and mature in that relationship, then we will stagnate. Paul, in writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12, says, continue to work out your salvation. So yes, you're saved, but now we have a responsibility to continue to work that out, to come to the the understanding of what the gospel means and live a gospel-filled life every day. Jerry Bridges uses a great phrase to describe this relationship between us and God that's always helped me, and I always go back to it. It's just dependent discipline. 
Dependent discipline. So we're dependent on God to do His work that only He can do in our lives, to change us, right? It's the Galatians 5. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? We can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a more joyful person today, or I'm going to be a more loving person. I'm going to be a more patient person. We can't will that ourselves. But we can discipline ourselves. We've used other phrases to talk about this isn't about trying harder but it's about training. It's about training our own spirit, our own soul, exercising discipline and doing our part. This is a broad subject and there's so much more. But I think it's safe to say that sloth itself is particularly destructive in our relationship with God, but it's also destructive in our relationship with others. Let me illustrate this And maybe this has some application to it because we'll start to see how this plays out maybe in real life when we talk about marriage. And I know not all of you are married. Maybe some of you um, will be married someday. But if you talk to anybody that's been married a long time, one of the things that they will all say is that committed love in the context of a marriage requires what? Hard work and commitment right? It just sometimes is hard work and commitment, and sometimes we really got to grind it out, and it gets hard. And what happens so often in relationships like that, we know what needs to be done, but maybe we're unwilling to work at it. Now we start to see how sloth becomes part of that. We're careless. We fail to act, we, we don't do the things that we know we're supposed to do. We become preoccupied with other things. Whatever those things are. I remember counseling somebody once who was having a difficulty in their marriage. And it was simply because he played too much hockey as an adult. And he had kids. And I just looked at him and said, did you ever think that maybe... Your wife is looking at your relationship to hockey as if you were having an affair with another woman. And it was just like, oh, never thought about that. But see, when we get preoccupied with other things, and what happens so often in marriage, right? We have, we have this, you know, and I've done enough weddings to know there's this romantic love. It's blissful. It's great. We're going to go on our honeymoon, and it's going to be awesome. And then kids come, and then work, and stresses, and life happens, and it just gets hard. And we want to we go back to the honeymoon. And we need to stop and ask the couple that's been married 50 or 60 years and say, what was it like? And I think they'll say, it was hard work, but we were committed to each other. Right? That, the honeymoon when everything feels fresh and exciting. And then dry periods come. And it's just hard. You see, love is an act of the will. Love is an action that we take. And so again, if, if, if sloth is the resistance to the demands of love... How many of us have maybe become lazy in our relationships? 
I mean, maybe it's not even, maybe it's not even a marriage. Maybe it's a friend. And we, we, you know, it's that little prompting where it's like, oh, I should text them. I haven't talked to them for a while. And I go, oh, no, I'll get to it another day. And it just goes on and on and on because what? We weren't diligent enough to do what we'd been prompted to do. So I, I think you probably get the idea of just how damaging sloth can be and how destructive it can be. So what's the cure? How do we guard our hearts against sloth? First of all, don't quit. doesn't matter what you're doing, don't quit. Ever, ever, ever. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, it takes work. Yes, love is a sacrifice. Yes, it involves dying to ourselves, but it is so worth it. The word that we would use here is perseverance, that you just keep on, keep on, keep at it. You know, and that's true in our relationship with God too. We hit desert experiences, and God feels far off from us. We feel alienated from God, and we just wonder if He even exists. But we keep at it. We persevere. That's why the hymn writer writes, love so amazing, right? When I survey the wondrous cross, if you're wondering, love so amazing, so divine, demands my what? My life, my soul, my all. So we stick to it. Secondly, don't escape. Don't escape. Rebecca DeYoung says, Asidia's or sloth's greatest temptation are escapism and despair. And so this is where we need to not only resist the temptation to cut and run in quitting or to engage in escapist behavior. I don't need to run into a long list of what we do nowadays to escape, but I bet you we all know that there are things that we default to that are just simply ways that we escape the stress of a broken relationship, the stress at work, whatever it is. And sometimes we escape by then incessantly being busy, right? So we keep ourselves distracted. So that's why I said earlier, you might be a hardworking, busy person, but you might be just doing that for some of the very reasons that 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 heart condition of sloth is, uh, is surfacing. And lastly... Commit to engage in essential practices. Surprise, 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 right? See, when we engage in in spiritual practices, what we are doing is simply this. We're placing ourselves in a place where we can be attentive to the Holy Spirit. Be attentive to the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't happen if we're always running or we're always escaping or we're always distracted. And so that's why we keep coming back to some of these basic core principles. Because it is sloth that's ultimately going to cause us to push back against any of these intentional efforts. Which means that even though we push back against them, we actually be kind of come trapped. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And, and so now we're trapped and then we're just tempted to escape. And we just go through this, this process because, because it's sloth that's keeping us from making the effort to grow in our spiritual lives. And if we're tempted to escape, there's one word. It's stay. Keep on. 
uh, I'm not sure I'm even going to pronounce his name right, Evagrius, who actually made the first list of the seven deadly sins. He had eight in the fourth century. His one word in combating this over and over is perseverance. It's just perseverance. It's a stick-to-itiveness. Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take, sorry, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So how do we wait for the Lord? We get alone by ourselves in solitude. We spend time in silence. We remove all the distractions if we can. We spend time in in the Scripture because we believe that God speaks to us through His Word. We spend time in prayer, praying to Him, and then stopping and listening for how is God speaking to me. And He reminds us of a verse. He brings a truth to to mind. He, He brings a promise back to mind. But we engage in a practice of fasting and prayer for the same reason so that we can pay attention to what God is doing in our lives. And and friends, that's why, like, it seems so redundant. But I know that we don't do this on a regular basis. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to hear it again. A daily devotional time where we get alone with God, with His Word, and we pray together. And weekly worship. All of these are just part of the routine rhythms that sometimes, you know what? Maybe you woke up, and I bet you there's some of you here this morning in, in person, so not, not, again, no offense, but you kind of looked out and you went, oh, I don't know if I want to go. And then there was this something that just happened in your spirit. You went, but I need to go. Right? That is what we're talking about here. It's just this sense of having these routine practices not because they become dull and boring and, and, and just out of ritual and obligation, but we do it because we believe that we're going to posture ourselves before God and come to a place where we can be attentive to the Holy Spirit and maybe for an hour just kind of tune out some of the, the stresses of life um, in that way. One more Rebecca DeYoung quote. Why did the fathers and mothers of desert communities describe Assyria's opposing virtues as courageous endurance, long-suffering, and perseverance? There it is again. How is staying the course supposed to help? They knew that in the spiritual life, enthusiasm and energy will wax and wane, and periods of felt alienation from God or spiritual burnout will threaten. Given the human condition and our sinful nature... Both our physical frailty and our fickleness of will. Listen to this. She says this. What we most need in countering the daily weariness of ascidia is steady commitment and daily discipline even when we don't feel like it. Even when we don't feel like it. Friends, the biggest excuse that I hear from people about taking extended time with God is this. I don't have time. So I'm going to give you another practice and a challenge. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is this week, monitor your screen time. Now those of you who, oh, I left my phone down there, who have an iPhone, 
does, I don't know about Android, like it probably doesn't because it's not quite as sophisticated, but um, <laughs> it tracks screen time. Who knows about this? Because if you don't, I'm going to go get my phone and show you how to do it. And you know the worst part of it is? Sunday morning at about 9.23, I get my weekly update notification. Does that everybody get it at 9.23? Can you change that? Because I don't want to get it before church. Because it <laughs> convicts me all the time. But it tells you your screen time was up this percentage or down this percentage from last week for a total of this many hours per day. But you can go in and you can see the breakdown and see what are you using it for. And friends, is it escapist behavior? If you just took 20 minutes off of some of those activities and spent it with God instead, what might that do to your spiritual life? You see, we have endless distractions. Do you know that studies, and this this kills me, but I've, I've read this several times, that we get distracted on average every 11 minutes in some way. Now, some of you are like, oh, man, my phone's constantly, like, because I got all my notifications for Instagram and Facebook, and every time somebody likes a picture, I'm told that somebody liked my picture. But if, it, if we get distracted every 11 minutes, they also say that it takes 25 minutes to refocus on the task that you were at. Now, you're intelligent people. Do the math. We are in a perpetual distraction where we can never actually focus on a task for any length of time, including being people who spend time with God. And we're so easily distracted from things that are important. So spend extended time in silence. That's why these day away retreats are so important. We invite you, if you haven't done that, this week is only half full, so there's still room uh, to go. And so, friends, listen, this is where we need to come to is this sense of perseverance, this sense of diligently paying attention to our spiritual lives, our souls. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I would ask you to look at Psalm 63, verses 1 to 8 today. Take some time to reflect on that and just say, God, is this the desire of my heart. Let's pray together. And as we do that, let me just guide us there. The worship team can come, get us ready for singing our last song. But I'm going to invite you to pray this morning. And pray first and foremost, asking that the Holy Spirit would examine your heart this morning and make you aware of any slothful thoughts, feelings, or actions. Just pray that. Just, God, where am I demonstrating slothful actions? Maybe there's some carelessness, some procrastination, maybe just not putting in a full effort Maybe I do become discouraged when it's hard. And then just thank Him for revealing that. But confess it. 
Say, Lord, I, I don't, I don't want to do those things. So, by your grace, help me. And then lastly, just pray. And again, ask the Holy Spirit to just fill you with enthusiasm, with passion. For maybe where things feel dry and you feel like you're in a desert place. Ask Him for a supernatural thirst. Supernatural hunger. Lord, when I think of a supernatural hunger, I think of the practice of fasting and how hard that is in in our world when food is so easily accessible. But Father, there's a particular practice and discipline of saying no to food so that we can say yes to you. And I pray, Father, that we would be a church, a group of people who, as apprentices of Jesus, would find time and space to put ourselves in a position where we can be attentive to the work of your Spirit in our lives. Help us to discover what works for us. Help us to encourage one another because we know ultimately it's for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.